the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed and executed upon a Roman cross in the city of Jerusalem on the hill called Calvary uh, 2,000 years ago. And that is a fact of history. There is no debate about that. It happened. Now, if we stepped outside and asked a few people, what do you make of the death of Jesus? I'm sure we are likely to get so many different answers, especially in our day. I, I think those who are below the age of 20 are likely to say, mate, <laughs> I haven't got a clue. What are you talking about? Who is this Jesus block? We are living in that society at the moment, isn't it? They might ask, what death? What happened? Which cross? Now, if some people are wearing a cross on them, we, and we ask them, do you know what that cross means? Why are you wearing it? Well, they may say, well, I'm wearing it because of Justin Bieber wears one. So I've just also got one. It's, good if, it's a good fashion statement. If we spoke to someone be order, and we asked them what they know about the death of Jesus, they are likely to know something about the death of Jesus because they would have let this hopefully in school. They used to major on these things uh, a long time ago and they would have attended Sunday school. The times, of course, have changed. Many children, many people are growing up hardly going to Sunday school. So if you ask the older people, they are likely to know that Jesus died on the cross, but they would go on perhaps to say that the death of Jesus fills them with pity because sadly he died tragically very young. What a life wasted, some of them might say. Indeed, if you remember that film uh, by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, many people went and watched that film, came out of that film crying, weeping, not because the cross struck them, weeping for Jesus. How could he suffer so much? And so there was a lot of weeping, and we had conversation with friends. They were majoring just on how brutal the suffering was, and what a tragedy it was. That's the world out there, isn't it? The way the world may think is likely to think about the death of Jesus. What about us here who have made a huge effort to come here this morning on Good Friday to reflect on the death of Jesus? What do you make of the death of Jesus? My guess is that most of us are here because we know Jesus died on that cross, not for himself, but for us, to save us from our sin. We know that. But sadly, that is where most of the time we end. It is good knowledge, but it's simply knowledge. It does not really affect often how we live in practice. And of course, there's a word for that, isn't it? Knowledge Divorce from practice. The word for that is hypocrisy, isn't it? Hypocrisy. My aim this Good Friday morning is to encourage us to depart from hypocrisy by encouraging us, each one of us, not only to know that Jesus died on the cross for me, but to live in light of his death for us. And to help us do this, I want us to look at this verse in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, If you know a bit about Titus, Paul wrote this uh, letter to his young prodigy named Titus. It's named after the person he wrote this letter to. And he he had left Titus uh, at the island of Crete. And and Paul was writing to Titus while he was there. Uh, while, While Paul had left and Titus was there at Crete. And Paul was concerned that having left Titus at Crete, some false teachers were causing trouble, troubles uh, to Titus. He says in chapter 1, 
uh, verse 10, that they are upsetting whole families. And you can read about that in chapter 1. And so to address this issue, Paul gives Titus some instructions about how the various groups in the church that are being affected by this false teaching going around should behave in the church. So he gives instruction to the elderly, the older men, the older women, to particularly help the younger women. He has instruction about how the young women themselves should behave. And it's the instruction about the slaves, the workers at that time, how all of these different groups in the church are supposed to live together. And this is sometimes called the household court. And we read about it in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. But after he finishes that, talking about that, he has to give these groups the motivation. Why should we live properly together? And so Paul goes on to explain in chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, the passage we, we just read, what is the motivation? What is the reason they should live together? And we can read those words again. Notice it says from verse 11 to 13, For the grace of God has appeared. This is why you should live together. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, this is Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the motivation. Paul is in effect saying we should live good lives because Jesus our God has saved us by his death on the cross to make us live with him and for him. And amazingly, the whole verses say that but also verse 14 in particular summarizes that summary, we might say. So I just want us to look at verse 14 this morning. Why did Jesus die on the cross? And two reasons I've just said. First of all, um, let us know that Jesus died to make us live with him. Jesus died to make us live with him. Jesus is God dying on the cross to bring us to him to make us have life with him. Now, what I've just said is something, of course, most of you have heard this many times, right? But imagine if you heard this for the first time. It would sound very strange, isn't it? What I've just said. Jesus died to make us live with him. You'd be shaking your head, right? You say, say it again. Jesus died. To make us live with him forever, we might say. How does that work exactly? Isn't that like saying to someone, I want to be your friend by dying for you? It doesn't work, does it? Surely, to be with people, you have to stay alive. And in any case, you might be asking, why should I care whether Jesus died to live with me? I have enough friends. To live with me. How does this Jesus being dead improve my life? That's why you, those are the questions you may ask for the first time. If you are hearing that truth for the first time. And I think those are great questions. Because they help us to remember just how extraordinarily Good Friday is. They help us to remember just how extraordinary the claims of Good Friday are. 
We believe as followers of Jesus, the reason we are here is that the death of Jesus is not like any other human death. And we see it in this passage. Look at that passage. First of all, notice that the death of Jesus was not like a normal human death because the person who died that day on Good Friday was both God and man. Look at verse 11 to 13 again. Or just uh, verse 11 to 13 particularly. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Who's appearing? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see the full title of Jesus there? He is the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage is one of the clearest passages in the Bible concerning the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is the great God. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he is unrepresent God. Jesus is the God who created us. Now, again, we hear this on Christmas, but it has to be emphasized. And as a, as a, as a preacher, you've got to keep emphasizing that point. Why? Well, because in 2018, a survey was done of regular church attendees in the UK. And it revealed that three in four of them believed in the Holy Trinity. So they believed God is three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But the same survey revealed three in four of them believed that Jesus, UK church attendees, right? Believe Jesus is the first and greatest created person by God. Do you see the confusion? So as a pastor, you've got to keep reminding his truth all the time as we preach here. We've got to keep saying, no, no, no. Because three of you, four of you may still be confused about the divinity of Jesus. Right? Because that's heresy, of course, isn't it? Jesus is not someone created by God. So I've got to say this loud again. Right? Jesus is not someone created by God. Jesus is God. He's God himself. Is God who has entered our world as a perfect human being. And this is what makes Jesus the most beautiful person in all of existence. Because he's 100% God and 100% human. He is one person with two separate natures existing within him in perfect unity but without contamination. These two opposite natures of Jesus sit inside him in perfect unity. In the body of Jesus, infinity sits perfectly with finitude. Eternity shares life with the temporal. Eternal glory coexists with human garbage. Eternal joy leaves next door to human sorrow. Omnipotence walks side by side with human weakness. Omniscience and ignorance talk together. Immutability and mutability are friends at home in the body of Jesus. And of course, as a man, Jesus can die because he's fully man. And yet as God, Jesus cannot die. This is the beauty of Jesus. And this is the beauty of the death of Jesus on Good Friday. 
Because on Good Friday, God mysteriously died that day for us in the body of Jesus. The cross is the death of God for us. The God who cannot die. And who in one sense didn't die, but yet died in the body of Christ. And that brings us to the second amazing truth about this death. Jesus our God, God in Christ died, not for himself, but for us. He died to save us from the slavery of our lawlessness. That's what verse 14 says. Look at verse 14. Why did Jesus die? Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Suppose the government permits you to go on holiday this summer, I know the chances are very, very limited, right? But suppose Mr. Hancock lets you out, right? Just for a little bit. I'm with that COVID passport and off you go uh, abroad, I don't know, um, in Prada Luz or somewhere like that, right? And what you do is you leave your flat behind because you can't stay in your flat so somebody has to look after it. Suppose you handed that flat over to somebody else to look after it. Uh, you trust them with your possessions and you hand over the keys, look after the pet, feed the cats, make sure that they are talking well together, right? All of that stuff. And off you go, jump on the plane, many COVID tests, all the rest of it. You tick the box and you are there abroad. While you are there, you haven't been out for a while. You, you booked maybe three weeks. While you are there, your friend who you've given the flat to now moves in and says, look, I haven't got a job now. This is my flat. Thank you. You know, it's difficult to get a job now. Thank you for this new flat. And they live there. They change their bank details. They inform your bank details into their name. They inform the local council that they live there now. And, of course, they um, upload all the photos uh, of their COVID secure parties. They're allowed by then, I'm sure. Uh, Onto Instagram uh, with their friends. They're enjoying life in your flat. And then, of course, they message you, don't they? Please don't ever come back. They send you that WhatsApp. Um, it's mine now. What's the name for that, what the friend has just done? The name for that is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. They are behaved in a rebellious, defiant rejection of you. They have taken possession of your things. The Bible says that is us before God. By nature, every human being is born into this world as a law to themselves. The Bible says that's how we have treated God. That's how we treat him. We have told God to get out and get lost and never come back. In fact, every sin we commit against God is just that. Because God is the owner of all things. And every time you tell a lie, every time you don't tell the truth, every time you, you sin, your thought, word, and deed, whatever you do, that's what you're telling to God. And the Bible says all of us, by nature, have turned against our God. This is who we are. We, we are sinners, lawless, positionally, since the days of Adam. 
And we are sinners actively every day. As that passage, Sister Verity read, everyone has run away from God. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each one to his own way. I hope you are picking up when she read that. Imagine Jesus or God stands up and draws a ring around himself. All of us are outside that ring as lawbreakers. We are there with the dirtiest criminals who have ever lived. All of us, we're just the same. Before God, there's no difference between you, between Hitler, Saddam, or whichever tyrant you want to think of today. You are born a sinner just like them. In fact, those who have done the worst atrocities were once very cuddly infants. I'm sure when you first saw Hitler, you, when Hitler was a baby, you must have been just doing all the wonderful baby stuff. Just like you and us. There was no difference at birth between you and us. All of us were just behaving like that, like he was, you know, nice cuddly baby. So you see, we are all bankrupt from birth. We are all sinners. Now, I know this is not something you want to hear. None of us want to hear. It's not politically correct. No one wants to be told you are a lawbreaker. It offends us deeply, doesn't it? Because we know people, we do know people worse than us. We like to measure ourselves against others. Sin is what our neighbors and our friends do, not us. It's those that are naughty people in the class at school. But the Bible says, all of our sin offends God. You are lawless. You are a sinner. I just want to encourage parents to particularly consider this truth for their children. Because as parents, we are very good at saying, my, 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 my boy is wonderful, but he's those kids. No, the Bible says all of us are lawbreakers. You are a sinner, and you are a prisoner to your sin. And as a child, children need to understand that from a very early age. And that this sin has power over you. You cannot stop yourself sinning. You are imprisoned to sin. You are born that way. And this is why when we talk about certain sins, and people tell us, oh, but I'm just born that way. Yes, of course you're born that way. Because all sin is us being born bent from God. And the Bible says the problem with that is that the consequence of our lawlessness is that all of us are now under the wrath of God. Because even though God loves us and cares about us, he's also a just and holy God. And he must punish our sin. So all of us, by default, are now headed to hell to suffer eternal punishment. That is the bad news. But the reason you're here this morning is because of the good news. So you're like, should I get to the good news? That's why I'm here. It's Good Friday. That doesn't sound like Good Friday. That sounds like Bad Friday. Well, the Good Friday is this, is that Jesus, our God, died on that cross to free us from our lawlessness and sin. And the word Paul uses here is redeemed. Don't miss that in verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. What does it mean to redeem? We don't use that word often, isn't it? We use it for vouchers, to redeem vouchers. Well, it basically means to buy back. You see, during the time of Paul, people were familiar with the culture of redeeming, not vouchers, but redeeming slaves. People used to uh, own other human beings as slaves, right? And they would sell people on the market using precious metals like silver or gold, right? And now sometimes some slaves were able to buy back their freedom 
if they had worked perhaps and they had accumulated some worth, that they were able to buy back that freedom. But often it was someone else who would come on the market to buy back that person's freedom. Or to just buy them, now owned by them. And so Paul, in fact, we've got an example of this in the scripture, isn't it? If you're familiar with the story of Azair and Goma, uh, it's a tragic story of Azair buying back his wife, Goma, after she had sold herself. Paul is borrowing that image of redemption. He's saying, Jesus one day, listen to me, Jesus one day looked at you, you were handcuffed to your lawlessness, and you were under the punishment of God. And out of his love for you, he decided to redeem you, to buy you back. How did he do that? By swapping places with you. He went to that cross and he suffered the punishment under God. He had to redeem you from God. Him being God, the Son had to redeem you from God the Father, we might say. He had to redeem you for himself, to buy you back so that you could be free from the punishment. Where did Jesus redeem you? Where he redeemed you on that cross, as I said. On the hill of Golgotha. Where he endured not just the Roman nails, but the punishment of God in your place. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Listen, the big thing about the death of Jesus, as you gather, we gather here this morning... Remember this, the big thing about Good Friday is not so much the physical death. That's important. Jesus died physically. But the big thing about Good Friday is that as Jesus was dying there, God poured on him all the hell, all the punishment, all the wrath that you deserve. And as our brother was reading, that's why perhaps I I can't quite check my mind whether... Uh, John records this. But we know, for example, from Mark's gospel, as Jesus was there, Jesus on the cross suffered for three hours in darkness. The hell that you deserve. And then as we read in John, Jesus cried out, it is finished after those three hours. What is finished? Well, the job of opening your prison door from lawlessness the job of opening, setting you free from the prison of being under the wrath and judgment of God. The work of redeeming you from lawlessness. It was finished. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And notice what he says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Don't miss that. What is the goal of God redeeming us? It is so that as he buys us back in freedom, not to live on our own, right? We are a slave that has been bought on the market to become a born slave, if you like, a new free person who lives for God. Now we are now part of the family of God. We are brought from prison into the family of God. We are now his precious position, possession. His peculiar people, some translations say. You see, the death of Jesus is God reaching out through his nailed hands, right, to all truly repentant slaves of sin into, and bringing them into his family as his cherished children. That's why Jesus died. The first point is Jesus died to make us live with him. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, 
each of us have to answer this Good Friday is this. Do you want this amazing gift of the death of Jesus for you? Have you accepted it? I mean, for yourself. Your husband cannot do this for you. Your wife can do it for you. Your parents cannot do it for you. You're going to do it for yourself. Have you accepted this gift? God freely offered himself on that cross for you. The gift is free, but you can only enjoy this gift if you accept it. If you first accept you're a sinner, and then you repent of your sin before God, and trust in the death of Jesus alone as a full payment for the forgiveness of your sin. You see, many people honestly admit they're happy to tell look, I admit I'm a sinner. Of course they're happy to admit that because everybody knows they're a sinner, really. But sadly, you see, many of us who attend church are not really trusting in the death of Jesus. We are trusting in our good works to end as a place before God. And of course, that means we are no true Christians yet. The only way for us to be truly served is to trust in the death of Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sin. Period. Salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. If you could earn your way to God, this is a waste of time, Good Friday. If you could do that, it is completely free. And you must accept it before God. To do anything else is to insult God. To add to it is to insult Him. You must repent and surrender to Jesus. And you must do it today. Do not delay. There is a lot at stake here. If you do not wholeheartedly accept this gift, you are forfeiting life with God. You are saying to Jesus, look Jesus, I am making a choice to live in lawlessness and to suffer the punishment of God. I do not want your death in my place. And of course that is spiritual suicide, isn't it? Because you and I are too small to bear the full weight of the punishment of God. You are too small. The punishment of God that made Jesus on the cross who is God cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you have to endure that wrath, not, not for a period. Because Jesus is God, he could endure that all of eternity in those three hours. You have to endure it for yourself for all eternity. Spiritual sister. So this morning on Good Friday, run to Jesus. True repent of your sin. Trust in him at this moment. And this very moment, you become his child. That truth will be true for you, isn't it? Jesus died to make me live with him. That's the first truth. The second truth we learn in this passage of why Jesus died is that Jesus died to make us live for him. Jesus died to make us live for him. You know, there's a famous story uh, taught by Jesus in the book of Luke about a young man who ran away from home. He wanted to live on his own and discover the world. Young people are doing that, right? And so he went to his dad. He asked his dad for the share of the family wealth, right? And off he went. The dad gave him. Surprise, surprise, right? He must have been excited. And off he went. He went into the world. And he started living large, right? Spending it, right? There was no COVID then, so he could just do what he liked. He clapped all night. He did whatever he liked, right? 
But after a while, his money ran out. It always runs out when you don't work for it. Just ask the lottery winners. His money ran out. And he was forced to crawl back home to his dad in Shem. And to the surprise of his older brother, the dad forgave the younger brother. And even threw a party for him. And of course the other brother was not happy, right? But that's the end of the story. That's how the story ends. Jesus taught the story to teach us that God is like the Father in the story. He shows grace to repentant sinners. And you can read about this story in Luke 15. It is a great story because it's a story that provokes, like all great stories, many questions. I have lots of questions about that story. And for me, the big one is this one. What happens the day after? What happens if the lost and found son misbehaves again? I guess I'm just like the older brother in the story. I just have doubts over the younger son. I'm thinking, he's a little spoiled, isn't he? He's going to take dad for granted now. So what happens if he misbehaves again? Now, we may be tempted to say, well, we don't know the answer to that question. You're reading too much into the parable. Look, Jola, there is no lost son, part two. The revenge of big brother. It's just lost, it's just lost, lost son, right? Just one, one story. But I think the answer is in the story to my question. The Lord Jesus clearly assumes that the love of the Father changes the heart of our lost and found son. Otherwise, the story doesn't make sense. We must not expect those saved by God, Jesus is saying, I think, to keep straying away repeatedly because the grace of God that has appeared brings salvation for all people, trains them to renounce ungodliness. Grace is a transformer. It changes us inside out. Now, I cannot prove that's what the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus exactly had that thought, right? But I know that this is what the Bible teaches. And this is what is being taught, particularly in verse 14 in our passage. Look at verse 14 again. Jesus gave himself for us, what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. According to this verse, we usually ask in Bible study, why did we would ask that question in Bible study, wouldn't we? Why did Jesus die to make us live with him? According to this verse. Well, to make us people who live zealously for him with good works. A people followed by good works. And then we may ask again in Bible study, what are these good works? Look, at, look in the context of the passage. What are the good works? We may ask in Bible studies. And we would answer, I hope, probably Brother Victor might volunteer that answer, in Bible studies as well. Look up a bit further in verse 11 to 13, because those are the good works, isn't it? The good works are works produced by the grace of God in our lives. Verse 11 to 13 says that, isn't it? For the grace of God has appeared. Why? What? Bringing salvation for all people to do what? To train us, training us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
and enabling us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, well, we may ask another question actually. What is this grace of God? In other words, the works are the, are the, are the works produced by the grace of God, right? That's the answer from verse 11 to verse 12. But we then ask the question, what is the grace of God in our lives that Paul is talking about that trains us to, that trains us to do these good works? Well, again, the answer is in verse 14, isn't it? The grace of God is described in verse 14. It is Jesus giving himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us, purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we've gone full circle, you see. We know what the good works are. We know what the, what the grace of God does. And in fact, we can conclude, Paul is teaching us here that those who live with Jesus are transformed to live for Jesus by the death of Jesus. How does the death of Jesus do that? We do that for doing this a Bible study again. Well, the death of Jesus does that by purifying us. Look at verse 14. And to purify for himself a cup, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And we might throw in another question. How does the death of Jesus then purify us? That's important, isn't it? Well, Paul does not say that here. We might answer in Bible study. But we then say, well, we're going to read the whole of Titus to understand. So where do we go in Titus? We jump in chapter 3, don't we? We realize in chapter 3, Titus explains what purify means. So you jump over to Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to verse 8. It says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God... Chapter 3, verse 4 to verse 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, and notice this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's like a carbon copy of these verses. And notice verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. To summarize all of this, Paul is saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to set us apart or purify for himself a people in the future, right? Who would repent and trust in Jesus. Jesus, if you like, set apart this new covenant people. These people who are set apart are morally changed by God the Holy Spirit. If you like to be regenerated by God the Spirit, to be made born again by the work of God in our lives. The purification there is really the fact that Jesus purchased on the cross our regeneration. That work of the Spirit. God, the Spirit, cracks open the polluted chest of a sinner. And he removes the dead heart corroded by sin. And puts in them a new heart that belongs to Jesus. That's what the Bible is teaching us here. 
That's what Jesus accomplished for us on Good Friday. But we appropriate that in time when we surrender to Jesus. The Bible is saying Jesus our God died on the cross to secure a new supernatural change in our hearts that enables us to live for him. And that's the two truths, isn't it? Jesus died to make us live with him. Why? Well, because he died to make us live for him. How is that accomplished? That is accomplished by the Holy Spirit who purifies us, who regenerates us and makes us a people for God. The good news of Good Friday is that if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you are now living with God. Just, just let that sink in, because that's the first point. You are now living with God. And you are living for God already through the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you became a true follower, everything you did was vile before God. Why? Because it was tainted by your moral filth and lawlessness. God could not delight in anything you did. Church attendance, anything else you did, it didn't delight in all of that. Feeding the poor, God didn't care for that. Why? Because all of that was tainted by your sin against God. I often say it like this, look, a non-Christian doing good things for God is like a husband who has just divorced his wife and then goes around to buy her flowers. Is the wife going to be delighted in that? No, she won't be delighted in that. That will be an insult to her. Why? Because the fundamental thing is that he doesn't love her and he has already divorced her. So for us, if we haven't been changed by the blood of Jesus, if we have not been cleansed from our sins and we're trying to do good things for God, even the good we do is an insult before him. But if you're trusting in Jesus, right, God has purified you by the washing of his Holy Spirit. You have a new heart inside of you. God, the Holy Spirit himself, lives inside of you. So anything you do for Jesus, anything you do for Jesus, no matter how small, even the sort of lazy church attendance, no matter how small, I mean, you should put in an effort, of course, but no matter how small, you're going to get this. It has infinite value before God. Because it is purified work, sanctified work. It is work purified by the death of Christ on the cross. Are you currently discouraged and frustrated that you are not able to do as much as you did in the past? Perhaps because of old age or just you are unwell at the moment. Oh, beloved, be comforted by this passage. Anything you're doing, no matter how little, if you're doing it for Jesus... It brings glory to him. Do not lose heart. The good news of Good Friday is that you must keep going zealously in doing whatever the Lord is enabling you to do. It may look small to the eyes of the world, but it is good work because it is work done for Jesus and by his Spirit. And this truth is also encouraging those of us who are, are, are prone to look at our past failures and sins. Have you let God down in the past in some way? Does your past weigh heavy sometimes? Do you sometimes feel like it is pointless for me to do any work for God because you know what? I've just done so much mess in the past. 
Well, take a fresh look at verse 14. It's an amazing verse. Jesus gave himself for us to what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus has set you free from your past, present, and future lawlessness. He has regenerated you by his Holy Spirit. Get ready to do some work. Don't look back. Look to the cross. Look at Jesus there. He died there to make you not only live with him, but to live for him. Who for your sake died and was raised, Paul tells us. And finally, this truth should also challenge all of us here, isn't it? Particularly those of us who are tempted to just coast along in our Christian life. Beloved, we must ensure we are growing in evidence in living for Jesus. You know, the last sermon Brother Ola preached in James taught us that our good works matter. They don't, not because they serve us, but because works prove our true faith. Amen, brother? That's what you taught, right? He taught us that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that serves is never alone, friends. It's always accompanied by good works. And here Paul is plainly telling us, isn't it, that Jesus died for us to make us become what? Zealous. Do you know what that word means? It's to make us become zealous for good works. The word actually the closest we could use today is extremist or terrorist, we might say. It has that capture. Jesus died for us to make us become extremists in doing good work for him. How does an extremist in good work look like? Well, like Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus zealously gave himself on the cross in humiliation for your redemption. On the cross, our Lord Jesus took on your identity as a spiritual criminal and he willingly suffered the full violence of the wrath of God for you. That's extreme, isn't it? Jesus put you first. Are you growing in putting him first? Is a, is a question. Do you have a growing desire to forget yourself for him? To suffer for your precious redeemer? Are you growing in hating lawlessness, moral filth that pierced his holy hands and feet? Are you increasingly broken by the ugliness of your sin? Our Lord Jesus died to make you his own possession. Not merely as an individual, but as part of his precious bride, the living church. What are you doing for him? Is there growing evidence in your life that you indeed belong to his people? Because you are growing committing to his local church. Beloved, as we come to the end of our Good Friday service, the Good Friday is meant to enable us to look afresh at the cross of Jesus and to answer that honest question, isn't it? What does my life truly make of the death of Jesus? Is there growing evidence in my life of trusting in the death of Jesus? In my life? Am I growing in living for my Savior in practice? And of course, if there is no such evidence, 
then let's not waste this Good Friday. What we've done this morning, the 40 minutes and plus you've listened to me, has all been wasted, isn't it? If you don't deal with this issue. As a believer, come afresh before Jesus. Repent and surrender to him today afresh. Ask him. You're already his child, but ask him to deepen the love within you for him. Ask our great God and Savior Jesus Christ to keep before you every day this wonderful truth of his death, that Jesus our God died to make us live with him and for him. To him alone be glory, thanks, and praise forever. Amen.